Hello, everybody. I hope you're well. I hope you're staying safe. It's time for another episode of Soul Searching. Our topic for the season of Advent is going to be Isaiah and the prophetic imagination. So why? Why are we going to talk about Isaiah uh, or even the prophets in general during Advent? It's because the lectionary, first place, the lectionary leans heavily on Isaiah every year, the lectionary, but here's just some examples from year B, the year we're currently in, both, both Advent 1 and Advent 2, the Old Testament reading assigned for those two Sundays is from Isaiah. Also, in all the options you have for Christmas Day or and or Christmas Eve, Isaiah is the Old Testament reading assigned to that. On top of that, we always hear about John the Baptist. We are hear, hear the stories from the Gospels of John the Baptist in association with Isaiah, with, especially in Mark 1.8. It says uh, that, uh, lo, the one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. It's a quote from Isaiah that's associated with John the Baptist, that's connected to John the Baptist, labeling John the Baptist as the one coming in front of Jesus to prepare the way. And so the season of Advent is rich in prophetic tradition. It's rich in uh, associations with the prophets. And so us digging into well, what did the prophets have going on uh, in the Hebrew scriptures and what did Isaiah specifically have going on and what was he trying to do and accomplish and what is the interpretation and the testimony of the book of Isaiah those are important questions for us, and, and, and it enriches our experience of Advent to dig into those right now. So that's why we're digging into Isaiah for this season of Advent. And to understand Isaiah, we really have to understand the concept of the prophetic imagination. So today we're going to talk about the prophetic imagination and how Isaiah is connected to Moses. Moses is the proto-prophet of the Hebrew Scriptures, the first he is uh, the one you can't really call. Uh, he's the pro he's the one that helps establish the people of Israel as the nation of Israel, and the Hebrews becoming the nation of Israel through the experience of the Exodus, becoming God's chosen people and being a people, um, and that happens through Moses, and especially Moses's relationship and leadership against and at and in opposition to and in resistance of uh, Egypt and the Pharaoh um, and that empire. We're going to be coming back to that concept of empire more in just a moment. I'm leaning heavily on this notion of prophetic imagination from Walter Brueggemann. He's written a book by the same title called The Prophetic Imagination. It's probably his best known work. I think it came out, the first edition came out in like 1979, and that is the thesis statement for everything else that he has written. I mean, he's written a lot. He's retired now. But one of the uh, leading uh, interpreters of Old Testament theology um, in the last 50 years, 40, 50 years, maybe even the leading interpreter of the Old Testament, especially the prophets in the last 50 years. So, leaning heavily on him, what we're going to talk about today. So this notion of prophets, there's the connotation and there's the biblical witness. When we think of prophets or someone who, or a prophecy or someone who prophesies, 
we're usually thinking in kind of our normal connotations of a fortune teller, a fortune teller. And it's a very individualistic notion, uh, giving a prophecy of this is going to happen to you. Uh, this is this blessing or this curse is going to happen to you specifically. Um, we also think about the prophets in a Christian context. We tend to read the Hebrew prophets as predicting Jesus and the coming of Jesus either the first time or the next uh, time. And also, they have tend we think that they have a that they're talking about the great by and by, the kingdom of God to come, the great age to come. Um, that they. Those connotations have a lot of history behind them and where they come from. They don't really hold water when you look at the biblical witness. They don't, not really well. Maybe some of them to a little bit. Um, and certainly there are times that it's appropriate to think about how the prophets foretell the coming of Jesus sometimes. Um, but that's probably the only one that has a little bit, that holds a little bit of water and then it doesn't really hold a lot. The biblical witness, the, the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures are way more interested with what's going on here on the ground, um, not in the sky in the great by and by, but here on the ground while we're still around, as the old preacher once said, um, that the prophets were concerned about what was going on in the nations of Israel and Judah, in the northern kingdom of Judah and the southern, no, I'm sorry, in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, so, you know, post-David, post-Solomon, uh, in the years after that, and especially as, it, as the, those two countries not only split from each other and became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but also um, eventually were overrun, first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and then leading to the exile. That's what the prophets were concerned about. What were the conditions leading up to that? They weren't really talking about individuals. They weren't saying, if you do this, this, and this, you specifically will receive a blessing. They were talking about the community. And usually it was a matter of warning, not fortune telling. If you continue to neglect the poor, this is a common message in the prophets. If you continue to neglect the poor, if you set up society so the poor are disadvantaged, the, the multitude of the poor is disadvantaged, and the minority of the rich are advantaged, then you're going to go wind up in spiritual ruin, ruin and physical exile, which what happens. All this is to say that the biblical witness, when we look at the Hebrew scriptures, the prophets are critiquing ideology, specifically the ideology of empire and what Brueggemann calls the royal consciousness. So the royal consciousness is a way that we are conditioned to think that impedes our ability to question the status quo and or imagine things being different. This is a quote from uh, his book, Prophetic Imagination. Only in the empire are we pressed and urged and invited to pretend that things are all right, either in the dean's office or in our marriage or in the hospital room. And as long as the empire can keep the pretense alive that things are all right, there will be no real grieving and no serious criticism. So there's a little bit of a connection, even you could say, between reading the Old Testament prophets and reading like 
dystopian dystopian fiction like the hunger games you know in the hunger games uh there's this one region or province or something that's, that's the urban center and they keep sending out messages that every, everything's okay right um uh um panem i think is the name of the of the country or the city and it, that's the author did that on purpose because there's a quote from cicero I think it's Cicero that says, uh, Panem bread, bread and circuses, give the people bread and circuses and they, you will keep them under control, right? So that's what the empire does. The Roman empire did it, uh, the empire uh, of David's line after David, David was kind of, David and Solomon were kind of the height. And then after that, um, the, it started to fray, but that was also an empire, Egypt, the, that Moses led uh, the Hebrew people out of was an empire. All empires in some ways manifest this desire to keep telling people it's okay. It's like when you watch the evening news and they give you the, num the, the number of people who died from COVID today and then immediately twitch, switch to a personal personal interest story about uh, somebody who won, uh, you know, a high school football game or something like that. You know, they, they immediately switch. There's no time to grieve those people who have died, but there's immediately switched to, we got to talk about something that's positive. We got to just, you know, move on. There's no space for grief. And that's an example of how this sort of gets manifested right now. It is the desire of the royal consciousness the ideology of the empire to keep things static, not to recognize pain or criticism. And we can't allow newness. We can't be different. Um, so, and in order to keep things from becoming different, we can't recognize what's wrong with right now. So we're encouraged to think that the way things are are the way things have to be. That's just the way it is is a manifestation of the royal consciousness. And the prophets were speaking against that. Moses speaks against that. Uh, Moses versus the empire. If you read the book of Exodus, which is a good thing to read uh, when trying to understand the later prophets as well, the empire is held up by static gods that maintained order and sanctioned the state. They promoted the suppression of empathy, pathos, and the imagination in the people they through a variety of techniques from both domination to um uh what what nietzsche called the opiates of the people or something like that you know the things the ways that we are used are told that everything's okay uh, that suppresses our imagination we can't imagine a world different uh, because uh, of all the machinations of the idols, the static gods of the empire, those that are sanctioning the state. The community of Moses is different. It's dynamic. God hears the cries of the people and is moved. Right in the beginning of Exodus, the people cry out, how long, O Lord? And God responds to that cry. That's a, a movement by a dynamic God not a static God, a movement by a dynamic real God as opposed to a static false idol. 
So grief, lament is what has to happen in order for us to ultimately sprout hope. Um, and that is in di direct resistance to the empire. And the prophets, um, Moses on down the line, they were about bringing about the, they were encouraging, inspiring, instigating this imagination that says the way things are, are not the way they have to be. And we can't imagine a different world. And we can grieve what is wrong with this world and recognize what's wrong with this world and do something about it. Um, and if we don't, that's going to lead us to exile, is what Isaiah ultimately says. And also what ultimately happens um, to both um, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is. Um, and Jerusalem falls and everybody's hauled off into exile, into Babylon. So what is the prophetic imagination? The prophetic imagination is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture. The way it is, is not the way it has to be. It's not the way God intends it to be. And we can imagine it different and use that to critique the way things are and generate energy to bring that about. Um, that's what the prophetic Im imagination does. And that's what the prophets proclaim is a consciousness that is different than that of the dominant culture. So Israel has a critique of imperial ide ideology. This is what some of what the Hebrew scriptures testify to. The way it is is not how it has to be because the social order is contrived and it's contrived with a purpose to help the few and not the many and not all. But if it's contrived, or since it is contrived, it can be undone. It can be contrived differently. It can be remade if the community has courage and imagination to bring it about. And God is the agent of that change. So Israel is not a solitary victim. Israel has an, the ultimate ally in God. So and these kind of four points that are a critique of imperial ideology come from Brueggemann's other, another one of his books, Hope Within History. Um, I recommend both of those, The Prophetic Imagination and uh, Hope Within History. They are not quick reads. They're the ones where you read a paragraph and think about it for a while. Um, but they are both intense and very, very good, especially if you want to engage uh, the Hebrew scriptures, and especially the prophets. Um, counter to imperial ideology is God's righteousness. Brueggemann defines God's righteousness not as the checklist of things that, you know, do this, don't do that. Um, rather, God's righteousness is a characteristic of God's godness. It's one of the things that makes God God. And specifically, it's the, po the power to give life to another. And this isn't individ individualistic. It's communal. It's about bringing about the conditions where a com another community can exist. Um, and because it's social, it's not individualistic. It's about um, creating life amidst the interrelationships of groups of people. And 
God's righteousness invokes justice, especially uh, the imagery in the Hebrew scriptures is often the widow and the orphan. And that's a metaphor for all of the poor, all of the oppressed, all of the disenfranchised. Um, uh, what one strand of theology calls God's preferential option for the poor. God chooses the poor to be in the oppressed. That's who God decides to be on the side of. God makes a choice, and that's a manifestation of God's righteousness. And it's counter to the imperial ideology, which is serve the interest of the elite and powerful few so that you can stay in power. That's an imperial ideology. And God's righteousness is counter to that, which says, how do we bring about life? How do we get conditions where uh, the poor can thrive and the poor can receive justice and society be, can, can be structured structured on their behalf. So now let's get a little bit of background on Isaiah. And we got this notion of the prophetic imagination in the back of our heads. Let's keep that and let's uh, look at a little bit of Isaiah. Um, and next week we'll get into some specific texts from Isaiah. So scholars think that there actually was a prophet Isaiah, though the whole book is not from him. Um, think that the first uh, 39 chapters, what is often called First Isaiah, um, is was either spoken by and somebody else wrote it down, or there is a tradition that these these sayings and oracles and poetry emerged from Isaiah ben Amos, who lived in the 700s. So this is when it's in Syria is invading both Israel and Judah and threatening both of those countries, both of those kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, so we get chapters 139, a big heavy theme of that, that period is threat. Chapters 40 through 55 are what's often called second Isaiah. Probably scholars think it's from a or an anonymous prophet, one particular prophet, but we don't know who that is. Again, emerging from the Isaiah tradition, if you will, but dealing with the notion of exile, but uh, there's grief and there's lament, but there's also hope in that section. This is when we start to see, talking about um, emerging from that exile, what's going to come about. And finally, third Isaiah, the big theme of that one is restoration. And it's probably the latest um, source material from the 400 to 300s, late 400s, early 300s. And it's a collection of different prophetic sources. Um, so all these sources that kind of run in the Isaiah tradition, but get combined together at some point, redacted together. But the theme is restoration. How do we restore uh, the community of God or the, that emerged out of the Exodus experience, that emerged out of Sinai, emerged from Moses, where God was the, the king, not, um, not an earthly king. And, and different things like themes like that kind of become manifest in third Isaiah. Um, so, you know, we can't really point to a specific kind of narrow time frame that it was written like we might do with one of Paul's letters. We can usually get within a decade on any of Paul's letters. And we also can discern whether some of those letters were written by Paul or attributed to Paul later. We've been able to sort all those things out. 
Isaiah, that's a bit trickier. It's an older tradition going back, you know, 700 years before, before uh, the first century uh, of the common era, you know, before the common era is what BCE stands for. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's an older tradition and, you know, things get redacted over time. Um, but and used liturgically and prayed and, and understood more and put together in different ways. So, but this is a common way of thinking about Isaiah as Isaiah, first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, threat, exile, and restoration. So, like I said, next week we're going to get into some specific texts from Isaiah. However, uh, do want you to think about, have some reflection questions. For the coming week, so where do you see the 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 ideology of empire active right now, the royal consciousness active right there, now, right now, today? What forces are telling us it'll be okay if we just maintain the status quo, if we don't have our it, um, it, the the Wizard of Oz, right? Is kind of don't look behind the curtain. What forces are telling us don't look behind that curtain right now? Um, counter to that, what are the prophetic forces at work these days? Who's inspiring us to the prophetic imagination, empowering us to imagine a, a different world, but the world that it, as it is, is not how it has to be, and we can construct it differently. What prophetic forces are, and this is the last one, what prophetic forces are at work to reorient our social structure toward the multitude of the poor instead of the rich few? Who's about that work these days? Where can you see that at work and at play these days? So I invite you, um, if you're thinking about these reflection questions, uh, either uh, tell us your thoughts in the comment section below here or on um, our other social media preferences, the Church of the Nativity, uh, the Church of the Nativity's other social media uh, accounts and pages and places. You know, there's not like a uniform term for the space that we create within the social media sphere. But, you know, in any of those places, let us know what you're thinking um, and look forward to talking to you more next week uh, about uh, Isaiah. And we're going to continue this conversation about Isaiah and the prophetic imagination. I do recommend to you, and I'll put links to these in the description of this video. Uh, I do recommend to you Walter Bergerman's prophetic imagination also his book, Hope Within History. It's a great place to sort of dig in to the prophetic tradition as a whole. And then when we go to read Isaiah or any other prophet, we can have that sort of lens ringing in our head, those thoughts in our head at the same time. Uh, hope you have a gracious and wonderful day. I hope you keep your heart and your eyes open for God's love that is at work in the world and Remember, God loves you more than you can possibly imagine.